a reading from Genesis, beginning with the 39th chapter and the first verse. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that, saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story. As soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in, the, in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. 
Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven years of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them spread seven years, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Pharaoh then told Joseph what he had dreamed. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine. 
and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it that food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there's no, none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set Joseph over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath. Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out of the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And what Joseph had said came to pass. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. The word of the Lord. This morning we're continuing our series on Jacob, but perhaps in an unexpected way. You may have noticed that as we read through our abridged version of Genesis 39 to 41, slightly abridged, Jacob wasn't mentioned a single time in what we read today. And this is because while Jacob is the primary focus of Genesis beginning in chapter 25, 12 chapters later in 37, where we concluded last week, the book's focus shifts to Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. And to say that this father and son, Jacob and Joseph, are very different would be a bit of an understatement. For more than a month now, we've followed Jacob as he spent the first four decades of his life 
seeking blessing every which way except from the hand of God. Through deception, through scheming, through manipulation. And time and again, these efforts fell short or Even when Jacob was able to attain what he wanted, he had remained restless. He'd remained unhappy. There's never any mention of Jacob having joy. He took everything he did have for granted. And yet the portrait of Jacob's life has been a gift to us, I hope you agree, in revealing the way of living that we were all been born into, we've all been born into as sinners. And exposing it, exposing that way of living for ourselves and on our own devices, exposing it for the false path that it is. Jacob's grasping represents what Jesus would later call the wide way, the way that's easy, and taken by most people. And it's pulling on every one of us all the time. But it's a way that leads to destruction. And yet, Jacob's story also has shown us the Lord's patience and mercy. Because throughout all of that, God never left Jacob. And continued to invite Jacob to trust in him. But the contrast between Jacob and his son Joseph, whom we read about today, really is night and day. If God uses Jacob's life to reveal our human plight as sinners, he uses Joseph's life to then show us what he intends for us, what Jesus will later call the narrow way of following and trusting in the Lord which is a hard way and taken by few, but is truly the path of life. Despite life dealing Joseph some pretty tough cards at times, I think you'll agree, Joseph shows himself at every turn to be honorable, to be honorable. When our passage opened today, he finds himself far from home in Egypt, purchased as a slave by Potiphar, but he serves his master well, and he refuses his master's wife's overtures. Later, he interprets dreams for the cupbearer and baker in prison, and then Pharaoh after that. And yet sometimes the outcome of him doing the honorable thing and seeking to bless others Sometimes the outcomes are still hard and frankly unfair. As Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him, the cupbearer forgets him for years. And yet remarkably, Joseph never seems bitter. Rather, wherever Joseph is, be it in prison or at Pharaoh's right hand, Joseph just seeks to be a blessing to others. And he trusts the Lord to work it out, to work out the results and the outcome. And Joseph's faithfulness allows God to not only bless him, but to also bless so many through him. And God is able to bring great glory to his name through Joseph. So 
So in what we read today, Joseph shows himself to be the anti-Jacob in many ways. To have all of the character that his father lacked and so desperately needed. But there's also a similar contrast between Joseph and his 10 older brothers. Today, our passage opened with Joseph far away from home, living in Egypt. But the reason Joseph was there is because his brothers had faked his death, you'll remember, and sold him into slavery because they hated him. Now, you'll recall from last week that Joseph's brothers were jealous of him because he was their father's favorite. But what made them hate him enough, hate Joseph enough to to get rid of him, was that the Lord had given Joseph a dream where he and his brothers were in the field tying up bundles of grain when suddenly Joseph's bundle stood up and all of their bundles gathered around it, his, and bowed low before his. And after that, Joseph actually had another dream that we skipped over in last week's reading of the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing before him, which represented his father Jacob, his brother's mother Leah, and his 11 brothers. Now, perhaps one could say that Joseph was naive to share these dreams with his family. That might be the most generous reading, that he's naive, given that these dreams seem to suggest he would one day rule over them. And this was indeed what God was revealing through these dreams. This was God's plan for Joseph's life. And yet we shouldn't misunderstand that it's not as if God didn't also love Joseph's brothers and desire to bless them as well. Rather, the problem was that his brothers had no belief in the possibility that God might want to bless them as well. And the reason for this is because these 10 brothers were living as their father Jacob had for so many years. That is, they'd been living faithlessly. Joseph's brothers had bought into the world's narrative that blessing comes through acquiring possessions and power. Right? That's the way of the world. So their imagination for what was possible for their lives was confined to what the world presented them with. And what the world presented them with, their family and culture said, this is your birth order, this is who you're gonna be, and this is what's possible for you. They knew it, they could predict it, right? So who knows whether God might have given Joseph's brothers dreams about his plans for their lives as well. We can't say, right? And I won't speculate. But what we can say is that it wouldn't have mattered if he had. It wouldn't have mattered. Because they, his brothers, had either given up on the dream that God would bless them or more likely they'd never believed it in the first place. But Joseph, he was a dreamer. He believed his best life would come through trusting God and doing the right thing even when it's hard, even when nobody's looking. And where his brothers were unhealthily enmeshed with the world, 
Dreamers like Joseph are healthily and lovingly detached from the world, trusting God for their glory. But this is also what made Joseph such a threat to his brothers. Here they've been putting in their time and keeping dad happy to get whatever crumbs of inheritance birth order is going to give them. And here comes the 11th son saying he's going to rule over them. No, no, no. That ain't going to work. They got to get rid of him. And that's the way it is. The tension between dreamers and graspers people who live the way of the world. Dreamers are always a threat to those with power under the status quo. Always a threat. One can think of these types of people throughout history, and yet Jesus, he was the ultimate dreamer. In fact, the story of Joseph prefigures Jesus story is life in a number of surprising ways. Like Joseph, Jesus walked closely with the Father and was helpfully detached from the world, right? He found his security from God, the Father, which is what allowed him to speak truth to power and to remain obedient to the Father even unto death. And yet like Joseph, God also vindicated him, vindicated Jesus. And what Jesus' enemies intended for ill, God used for good. Well, I'll let y'all talk more about that in life group. But, but Joseph's brothers got rid of him, right? And yet the good news for dreamers is that even though the world will hate dreamers, and it will, right? They're a glitch in the matrix, They disrupt the status quo, right? And so the the graspers of the world will cause dreamers all sorts of trouble, but even so, nothing, the good news is that nothing can thwart God from bringing his plan for the dreamers' lives to pass, right? Because they're trusting in him to take care of the outcome. Ultimately, what distinguished Joseph's life from the way his father had lived and the way his brothers continued to be, what made him like Jesus, was his sense of vocation. Christian author Gordon T. Smith writes in his book about vocation. He explains that vocation is, is the question of vocation is, who am I? And who has God called me to be? And Joseph understood the answer to that question, those questions. Now, in eras past, when the church has thought about one's vocations, primarily it's thought about it in regard to young adults trying to figure out what to do with their lives. But more and more, Christians are coming to understand that the question of one's vocation is critical for every believer at every stage of life. It's not just critical for those who feel called to vocational ministry and like the priesthood or something. It's not just critical for those who are in their adolescence. No, vocation is a critical question for believers at every stage of their life. If they don't understand it, if they don't grasp what their vocation is, they're gonna be lost at sea and terribly ineffective for the kingdom. 
And in a chapter of his book that's titled Chapters of Our Lives, Smith outlines three transitions in our lives where the question of our vocation is most critical. So before I close, let me provide a brief overview of each of them. And what I think you'll see is that we've already gotten to see Joseph absolutely nail the first two of the three transitions. In a human's life cycle, Smith says the first transition where vocation is important is in that transition from adolescence to adulthood. And we talked about this some in the boundaries course last year. I think it was last year. This, at this transition is where a person becomes established as an adult. And in chapter 37 that we looked at last week and reviewed today, we see Joseph does this, gets established appropriately and healthily as an adult where his brothers fail to. At this time is when a person comes out from under the authority of their parents to take responsibility for their own life and move from dependence, on, dependence upon those human parents to a mature adult dependence on their father in heaven. In other words, at this transition, God is supposed to become a person's parent. And scripture emphasizes the value of leaving home at this time. Not that you have to, but it's just a lot less confusing for everybody involved, right? But of course, this wasn't the tradition in the culture where Joseph was raised. And frankly, it continues to not be the tradition in some cultures today to leave home at this time. So it was actually a blessing that through his brother's unkindness, Joseph is forced to leave home. It helps him in that process, even if it's painful. But even before his brothers you know, kick him out, it was clear that Joseph was ready. We're told he was 17 at that time. And even if God hadn't given him such a specific dream, Joseph had clearly made that shift from being loyal to his family and unquestioningly trusting of his parents to being loyal to God and obeying and honoring God with his life. So that shift from adolescence to adulthood is the first critical transition when it comes to vocation. But it's not so much about what job we might take, talking about today, but whether we can differentiate from our parents and grow into the capacity to take personal and adult responsibility for our lives before God. And the extent that we're able to do that, to make that transition well, to the extent that we're able to, Smith explains that that typically will then begin a season of learning and self-discovery that leads up to the second key transition, which is from early adulthood to middle adulthood. Y'all stay with me here. This second transition from early adulthood to middle adulthood, with this, there's actually a pretty large range of ages when this second shift in the middle age can occur. Perhaps an individual's gotten well-established into a career by this time. Perhaps they've tried on a few careers for size and aren't quite well established. Or maybe they're the primary caregiver of children. And this transition happens when the kids are all in school or when they come to have an empty nest. So this transition could occur when someone's in their late, mid to late 30s or it could happen as late as when they're in their early 50s. But Smith explains that it, it takes most people till at least their mid 30s to really figure out who they are 
to figure out their strengths and desires and temperament. And so this transition happens when we're finally to the point where we're able to discern and decide what matters to me more than anything else. What matters to me more than anything else? That is the key question for this stage. I should say that one's vocation, again, shouldn't be confused with their career, though those questions can be related. But in Joseph's case, we see Joseph hold a variety of jobs. That is, if we can call being a slave having a job, right? But he's Potiphar's servant. Then he's put in charge of the jail as a prisoner, which I guess is a job. And then he finally becomes the overseer of Egypt, right? Which was a pretty good progression. But for a Christian, our vocation For a Christian, our vocation is, is about asking the question at this stage, who has God made and called me to be? And yet what's hard about this transition is it involves making a choice. Because the truth is we can't do everything. God hasn't called us to be everyone, to be everything, right? And so this transition involves us accepting and, and recognizing our gifts and accepting responsibility for them, our gifts and abilities God's given us, but also accepting our limitations, that we can't do everything, even everything that we may want to do. But the key is, will we go our own way and be ourselves, who God made us to be, and believe that he'll bring blessing in us and through us? Or will we go fear's way and do what somebody else wants us to do or what we feel like we have to do in order to attain and grasp for the blessed life ourselves. Well, Smith explains that if we fail to make this transition, discerning how we can use our gifts to love God and bless others, we're either gonna find ourselves consumed with busy, hectic work that takes up all our time, right, but isn't really fulfilling, or we're gonna find ourselves going through the motions of whatever we're doing and, and lacking passion, right? So that's that middle transition from early adulthood to middle adulthood, where we decide what's most important to us and that governs everything we do from the career we choose to who we say no to, who we say yes to, all that sort of stuff. But the final transition where the question of vocation is significant is not something we've gotten to see Joseph do at this point through chapter 41. He nailed the first two, but he's not to this place yet. And that transition is from middle adulthood to our senior years. Of course, this transition occurs for many when they retire. But the good news is that while we may retire from a career, having a vocation as Christians... That never ends, right? It may change how it's exercised or implemented. Smith explains that in this stage of life, one necessarily gives up some power and control for a variety of reasons. And this may be a season of our lives where there's more leisure. But make no mistake that the popular Western idea of retirement as self-indulgence and a chance to just check out just being all about that, that is a thoroughly unbiblical idea. 
and it is sure not to ever deliver on the fulfillment it promises. You only play so many holes of golf, right? That can't be your whole life. So Smith suggests that one's vocation in this latter stage of life is primarily expressed in sharing wisdom and giving blessing. Sharing wisdom and giving blessing. Now there are of course plenty of people in this life stage who hold significant jobs. Smith mentions, for example, the Pope, right? Who is usually in this life stage and yet holds a pretty big powerful job. And there are exceptions to every rule, but Smith observes that often, even with their official title, people like this are primarily still, primarily what they're doing is still is is sharing wisdom and giving blessing, right? Even if they're getting paid for it or have a title. And I love Smith's definition of blessing. He says to bless is simply to affirm the other and to take particular delight and joy in the other in a non-judgmental or prescriptive manner, right? Blessing is simply to affirm the other and to take particular delight and joy in the other, but not in a judgmental or prescriptive manner telling them what to do. And this is consistent with what we talked about last week, right? So this stage of life is to be a time of giving wisdom and sharing wisdom and giving blessing. But so often people make the mistake of doing something else. Either, again, we talked about kind of that extreme checkout of retirement that's encouraged by our culture. Or people take up bemoaning rather than blessing. Bemoaning the next generation's or frankly, just the world around, rather than seeking to bless. But if we finish our lives that way, in bitterness, anger, disappointment, rest assured, we'll have chosen the lesser half. This is a stage where healthy individuals tend to have a lot of time and attention to give. And there are certainly people out there who need that attention particularly in younger generations. Smith talks about the role of grandparenting being a vocation that some identify as their vocation at this stage. Or if one doesn't have grandchildren, being a surrogate grandparent. Well, if you want to know more about this, I'll let you read the book or the chapter. But perhaps you've never really thought about your Christian vocation, particularly as a layperson, right? Well, that's okay. This... This sermon today isn't meant to shame you for that. In fact, there are plenty of churches where you'd never hear a thing about this. You'd never be challenged to think about that everybody has a vocation. But if that's the case, if this is kind of a new idea, then this is an invitation to start praying about that and to start asking God to show you. You know, there's a lot of things we can do with our time in COVID. A lot of bemoaning, (laughs) Start using that time to ask God to discover how he can use you at whatever age. But if you have thought about this before, this is then a chance to reconsider and evaluate whether the worries of life have pulled you away from that path for some reason. 
the good news is it's never too late to turn away from the ways of Jacob and to turn toward the ways of Joseph. Today, the story of Joseph beckons us to consider our own lives and to surrender any ways that we are grasping for blessing ourselves rather than concerning ourselves with loving God and our neighbor and trusting the outcomes to him. Are we willing to take up that challenge from the Lord to live by faith? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.